All right, so you started this last week um, where you jumped off of the scene at the Red Sea, where God revealed himself as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and where you opened up in this last week of study was in Exodus 24 and 25. I want to just focus a little bit on what was said in Scripture right before the instructions for the tabernacle were given. I don't know if you guys um, looked at that or or notice what happened in Exodus chapter 24. But what's going on at this time is that the Hebrews, the Israelites, are camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. Okay? They will be at this base camp for about a year before they continue on their, their desert journey at the base of Mount Sinai. And what is happening is that Moses, their leader, is going back and forth from the people to the top of Mount Sinai where God is dwelling. Okay, so back and forth. If, he has, if God has a message for him, he goes up there. We've got to imagine Moses is pretty ripped, pretty chiseled at this point to be climbing a mountain up and down, up and down. And what happens is that the scene opens where Moses tells the people what God is going to ask of them and tells them the rules that God has told him. And what we see from God's people is that they're feeling super optimistic, right? What is it that they say? They say, all of these words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So they have this super confident day and they say, we're going to do that. So what Moses then does is he builds an altar there at the base of Mount Sinai and then he makes a sacrifice. This is the ratification of the Mosaic covenant. Once again, we're looking at a covenant beginning and being explained to God's people. So this is the Mosaic covenant. So what happens here is he makes the sacrifice. He takes the blood from the animals and he spills it. Um, on, the, on the law, on the altars, and then in this horribly graphic scene, he takes the blood of the sacrifice and he, spray, he puts it on the people. He sprays it on the people. So once again, we're seeing a covenant that is sealed with blood. What happens next is that Moses and the 70 elders of Israel are invited to come up the mountain. Sounds like maybe just partway up the mountain. And it says here that they saw God. Listen as I read from Exodus 24, verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. They, there was under his feet, as, a, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. So this is pretty amazing what the elders see here. And it's, this is some verses that I have skimmed over so many times in my life, but to really slow down and say they saw God, they thought they would never see him. What they see is beautiful. It's like sapphires. They see him like on a throne. He doesn't kill them. And then he, he eats and drinks with them. And then God invites Moses to come further up the mountain, but to come up by himself. God then gives him more of the law. He gives him the tablets. And there on top of Mount Sinai is that Shekinah glory of God. That's what we looked at last week. So on top of Mount Sinai was this big cloud, this terrifying cloud. And that's where Moses went and met with God. And it is there atop Mount Sinai that he is going to give him the instructions for the tabernacle. God orders that a sanctuary be made so that he may dwell in their midst. 
Essentially, what God is saying to Moses is, I'm going to give you instructions so that you can build me a house. So this week, what you did was you looked at the first part of the scriptures on the tabernacle. So the way the Exodus is organized is that we actually start in the innermost room of the sanctuary of the tabernacle, right, with the ark, and then it moves out. Well, that works super well if we were going to do this all in one week so that we could get the full picture, but we wanted to follow the text, and so it can be a bit confusing. So what I want to do is give you guys a really quick overview, actually starting from the outside and going in. The purpose of this is not to steal from next week's topic, but just so that we can fully understand and and picture it. I'm very visual. I want to take us through what the tabernacle as a whole would look like. So let's start from the outside. So let's actually imagine, just to make this you know, believable, that there was a drone there, right? That there was like a GoPro that is going to start on the outermost part of the Hebrew camp. So the first thing that we would see from this drone is that we would look down and we would see that the tabernacle is sitting in the middle of the Hebrew camp and that the 12 tribes of Israel are organized around this courtyard that held the tabernacle. And most proximal to the tabernacle would be the Levites, the tribe of Levites, which were the priests. Okay, so we would notice that right away. And maybe we would be quick and we would be clever and we would say, oh, I get it already. This was supposed to be the center of their life. This is what their whole life was to revolve around, was communion with God, was worship of God, approaching God as we saw that tabernacle be right there in the middle. But then we would move in closer, and what we would see in this outer courtyard is that we would see Hebrews bringing their animals, so bringing sheep sheep and rams and birds, and even like some grain offerings at times, bringing it into the courtyard. What we would see is these Hebrews bringing them to a priest, and we would see busy priests all over the place putting these animals on the brazen altar and tying them down, and sacrificing them. So really picture that. We're gonna see a lot of activity in that outer courtyard. We would zoom in a little bit more, and honestly, you know what we would see, guys? We would see blood. We would see so much blood. Honestly, we would see gore. We would probably see excrements. I mean, you gotta think, like, this was quite the scene. This was disgusting. Think about what you would smell there in the outer courtyard. The drone would then move us in, and we would see next a laver, so a place where the priest would wash. Okay, So then we would get closer, and we would see that the outside of the actual tent was made of goat's hair. Nothing impressive. And in our homework, we, we asked the question, why was this a tent? You know, Inside this courtyard, why would we find a tent? Well, very practically, it was so that it could be portable. Right? The Israelites were going to be traveling around as the pillar of cloud and fire uh, led them. And so the tent needed to be tore down and set up, much like Veritas Church. right? And, and so that's why it was a tent. But even, even more so, isn't it God coming and saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to leave my home in heaven and I'm going to come temporarily to live with you. But this world, this world, it's more my footstool than it is my permanent home. So remember my deity, that this is just a tent that I am going to stay in. But he has come to set up camp with his people. 
So we would move into the interior of the tent and what we would immediately notice that the inside is prettier than the outside. The outside was plain goat's hair. The inside was beautiful linens and fabrics for the walls and they were embroidered. And maybe then we would notice, hey, this actually looks royal. This actually kind of looks like something like Eden. This looks like a royal tent, much like Eden looked like a royal garden. In this room, we're not going to see the Hebrews, are we? Inside this tent, we are only going to see the priest. What the priest would be doing there would be lighting the lampstand and burning incense and laying out the bread on the table. And maybe we would even notice how much better it smells in there near the altar of incense versus the smell of death outside. And then just just to be crazy, let's just imagine that that drone actually goes into the next room without getting blasted by the glory of God. What would we see in that innermost room, in that holy of holies? We would see the Ark of the Covenant. We would see the Shekinah glory of God covering it. And there was only one person that we would ever see there. And that would be the high priest. And then we would only see him one day a year on the Day of Atonement. So what is the big picture that we need to understand before we can go any further? We need to actually answer this question. What did the tabernacle mean to God's people? We can't jump over that step and be like, okay, does this story tell me about me yet? Where do I get to see that I'm likable and pretty from the tabernacle? We won't get there. That's going to be a big old jump. But first we need to see what did the tabernacle mean to God's people? It meant that he was going to live with them. It meant that he's moving into the neighborhood. He's saying, I'm moving in, folks. It meant that he was going to be with them in their wilderness journey. See, this is God making his home in a humble tent. He's not just the God who dwells in the heavens, but secondarily, he's not just the God of the mountaintop. He's going to leave that mountaintop and come down to his people. So this is God promising to his people I will restore what was lost in Eden. So let's look at what, the, what instructions were given to Moses to give to the people. In Exodus 25, the Lord said, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribu- contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twisted linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod, for the breastpiece, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture, so shall you make it. So there's two things that I think we drew out in the homework that we need to take note of about what instructions were given right away. <clears throat> so you guys probably watch HGTV because you're breathing women. So um, you got to think of like those shows where someone comes to like Chip and Joanna and they're like, Chip and Joanna are like, what do you, you know, what do you want? And they're like, oh, I, whatever, you know, like just an open concept, maybe one powder room, three bedrooms. You know, they just kind of give this like vague description, knowing that 
Chip and Joanna are going to do something amazing with it, right? And my husband and I are remodeling in December, and that's kind of how I feel. I'm just kind of like, I just want to find people who are better at this than me. I just know I want it a little bit more open and a little bit more durable to withstand my children. But I, I don't have all these specific things that I'm like dying to have. And that's not what we see in Exodus, is it? God is saying, no, I'm going to tell you exactly how I want it, down to every measurement and, and we're tempted to just look over these measurements because it's super boring, right? But there's something there. <clears throat> Excuse me. He wants it built according to his design. And secondly, he wants the supplies to come from a free will offering. So we read that. We ask a question about it. We, you know, we look at our, what are our hearts? Uh, where are our heart, hearts when it comes to being generous and wanting to give to the work of God? But let's also actually put ourselves in that context. Picture that you are a Hebrew woman. Picture what you have just gone through. You have just plundered the Egyptian women, right? You were a slave your entire life, and now God is freeing you, and you get to plunder these women who have mistreated you your whole life. You get to take their gold and their silver and their bronze. You get nice jewelry for the first time in your life. You get new pots and pans. Like you get all this stuff from them and you're starting off on your journey and you're like, yeah, I can be God's daughter. This is awesome. I got all my stuff. And now you're at the camp at the base of Mount Sinai and Moses says, God wants your stuff. But we read that they did it, right? That they gave, they, they did. They gave all of their nice stuff. Why? Why was it so easy, it seems, for them to make this offering? Well, what did we study last week? Where were those Hebrew women last week? They were beholding their salvation at the Red Sea. These people witnessed a huge miracle done for them as God carried them out of Egypt and then through the waters. See, God wanted their offering to be a response from that Right? He doesn't want someone who's giving out of duty or drudgery. He wants it to come from a response to, look what God has done for me. That's what he means when he says he wants a cheerful giver. And we notice that these, all of these um, materials, these were nice materials, right? These were not cheap or common. This is more like, like pottery barn stuff, not Walmart, right? These are fine and they're expensive. And then we are starting to catch on that there's a significance in that. Gold, silver, bronze. These are um, fine materials. Acacia wood, it was a really hard and durable wood and it actually had an aroma to it. What do we see about the color scheme that God orders? Well, white, it's going to teach us about him, right? We're starting to pick up on that pattern. What does this teach us about God? Well, the white was going to teach the people of God's purity, of his holiness, then there was blue, speaking of God's transcendence, blue pulling our eyes to the heavens, purple for his royalty, and red for the atoning blood that would be spilt in that tabernacle. Why does this matter? You guys know this, right? Because the tabernacle is pointing us to Jesus. This tabernacle is a shadow of what is to come. So like we have said, the tabernacle casts this long shadow across the Bible, pointing us to Jesus and pointing us even to ways that we are the tabernacle or the house of God, but also pointing us to heaven. 
You guys had moments in your study this week where you notice like, oh, this points backwards to Eden. And that reminds the Hebrews and us of, of where we came from and what the original design and purpose was for us. And then it also points us forward to Jesus as Jesus would be the way that we can draw near to God. So now that we have looked closely at these, now let's look carefully at the first three pieces of furniture that we see in the tabernacle. So the first one was the Ark of the Covenant. So this is tucked back into the most um, furthest back corner of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. So it was a box made of acacia wood covered with gold, also called a sacred chest. Inside this chest was the, the eventually was the Ten Commandments, the budded staff of Aaron's, and a jar of manna. And something cool came, I noticed when I was studying is that it was actually an old custom of, of all the religions in the Near East to take a copy of their God's decree, of their God's covenant, and put it in the footstool of their king's throne. And here we see that exact same thing. Atop of this gold ark was a seat called the mercy seat or the atonement seat. And on either side of this seat was a cherubim. Also carved out of gold and the position of the cherubim, they were facing each other with one wing out and they were looking down at the mercy seat. What was the purpose of the ark? That was the description. So what did the ark tell the Israelites about God? A couple of things we saw in this chapter that it was at the ark, God says, there I will meet with you, right? From above the mercy seat, I will speak with you about all of the commandments I have for the people of Israel. Again, like in Numbers, it says, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat. This is how God would meet with him within that Shekinah cloud. No longer atop a mountain. You gotta think this is new for these people. They've been seeing God up there and now, He's saying, here is where I will meet with you. I wonder how that sat with the people when they first heard about it. I mean, taking what they've, what they've experienced of God so far, now they're setting up camp. They're kind of making a little bit of a home here at the base, Mount Sinai. But God's up top, and they can see him, right? I mean, this description is, is pretty vivid from Exodus 24. Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. He was on there for 40 days. God is saying, I am coming down. I am moving in. And I just wonder if some of them were actually a little bit uncomfortable with that. I mean, that's quite a sight to behold. And maybe they were getting comfortable with like, yeah, God, you stay up there. You stay nice and lofty. We've got our messenger going back and forth, but I'm more comfortable with this. But God was now saying, I'm coming even closer. I wonder if God coming that close made them think, yeah, we need a mercy seat. If God's going to be that close and see my daily life, maybe we need a mercy seat. 
And so what else they learned about God from this ark is that he is merciful. This mercy seat was also called the atonement seat. That word atone means to cover. And you might hear a little bit more about this next week, but we actually read that on the day of atonement, that one day of year, the atonement seat was sprinkled with blood. That blood actually provides the answer that the Israelites would have of how is it that that God that I see atop Mount Sinai is going to come down here? How is that safe? How will I live if that holy God that I see in that huge terrifying cloud comes close? How are any of us going to live? And we know, because we have the full story, that the answer is in that atonement, that covering, that blood. And the third thing we see from the ark is that this is the throne of God. As you did, saw in your homework, I, I took you to a couple different cross-references. So what do we learn about, what did they learn about God? Well, if you're looking at the throne, then you're going to conclude that God is king. Why, why does this matter? Well, I feel like what, what God is telling them is, hey, hey, Israelites, just because God is, is with you, it doesn't mean he's your homeboy right? Like just because God is there with you, it doesn't mean like he's just like your bro and you're all chummy and you can just like approach him however you want. God is, is making sure that they're going to understand who he is as he sits on a throne. As the elder saw halfway up the mountain, a throne with sapphire and as clear as the heavens. God is not Santa, He is not a comfy grandpa. He is a king. And it was important that the Israelites understood that because that would affect how they approached him. Did you guys notice as you studied this furniture that the mercy seat is the only chair in the room? It's the only place to sit in in the whole tabernacle. Did you notice that? Who, and who sat there? Aaron didn't sit there. The Lord sat there, right? Did you ever wonder, why wasn't there more chairs? I think it's partly because anyone else who was in that tabernacle had work to do, had a lot of work to do. Those priests had no reason to sit down. They were constantly working, whether it was trimming the lamp or burning the incense or just even for the sacrifices. I mean, they were every day coming, offering a sacrifice first for themselves and then for the Israelites. The second they make that sacrifice for one of the Israelites, what's he going to do? He's going to leave and go sin. He's going to have to come back and do it again. How toilsome, how burdensome is that? And that reminds us of Eden, where we are told that our work will now be toilsome. I thought even about how I have days where I feel like I never sit down. And I'm sure you guys do too as well. Certain days, I think of the busiest seasons of my life where literally I can go a whole day and never have time to sit down. The work is never done. And often it's like I, I start my day off really early. I have plenty of energy, plenty of motivation in the morning. And so I attack my days and I go I go hard all day, about 2 p.m. I get my iced coffee so that I can power through the rest of the day. I am super intense about bedtime for my kids. 7.15, they are in their beds, no messing around. I don't care how old they get. 
18 years old. We're going to bed at 7.15. But what do I do when that, last, when that door is closed and that last song is sung to them? I plop down in my chair. And then I just sit there. And it takes about three minutes before I'm like, ugh. I just remembered something I need to do, right? Uh, or, you know, or one of them yells out or something. Or I remember that there's still dishes to be scrubbed or laundry to be switched over. Or the worst, it's like I'm plopped in my chair and my phone's right there. And I'm like, oh, no, right? right? There is always work to be done. And the priest felt this. They, they had nowhere to sit there. But that is not what is true about God. What we learn about God is that he is seated on a throne showing us that his work is done and that Jesus is seated at his right hand. Jesus, who is embodied by the contents of this ark, sits victoriously now at the right hand of God. It says in Hebrews, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ, has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. So what do we learn about God from this ark? We learn that we are very blessed to have a different perspective than the Israelites. We get to look at this scripture knowing the story of the New Testament. So we get the joy of seeing Jesus within that ark. We see that he is the bread of life embodied in that manna. We see that he is the high priest, which you will learn about next week as we see Aaron's budded staff. And we see that he is the fulfillment of the law as we see the Ten Commandments. The ark tells us the gospel, doesn't it? It shows us that although we are lawbreakers, we are people who could not keep the Ten Commandments even long enough for Moses to descend the mountain. We are covered and mercy. And mercy is available to us because of the sprinkling of blood, not of lambs, but of Jesus. And if you were in our first Peter study, it was probably the highlight of the summer when we saw in first Peter, this verse that talks about how angels are pondering this. And what, what we saw is that these angels who are there to guard the way to God, just like in Eden, are also there with their gaze down, pondering the gospel. They are pondering, how, how is this possible? How, how amazing is this? As they are, are spiritual beings. They're not humans like us who, who receive the gospel and who get salvation. They're, they're just spiritual beings who don't, I guess, need that, that salvation. And so they are standing here above the presence of God and they're saying, whoa, what? And they are pondering it. So our application from the ark is, are we pondering this gospel? Are we moved by it? Or have we graduated from it? Have we graduated from like, Jesus died for my sins. I'm saved. He lives in my heart. Or are we blown away by this? Are we stopped with our gaze on it saying, this is crazy that my lawbreaker status is atoned for, 
is covered for? Are we daily letting our gaze fall to the goodness of the gospel and preaching it to ourselves every day? The next piece of furniture that we studied this week was the table, was the bread of the presence. So what was the description that we read? We read about this table. It also was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And atop this rectangular table was the bread of the presence. So this bread was made by the priest, and it was laid out, 12 loaves of bread, I think like in two piles, six each. And then at the end of the week, that's what the priests ate. So at that point, it's probably croutons, right? So they're eating this bread, and then they would make new stuff, and it would lay out all week. And this was called the bread of the presence. <clears throat> what was the purpose of that? What do we see in here? What did it mean for the Israelites, for the priests, when they would see this? Well, I think it probably was saying, God will sustain you in the desert, right? He's going to sustain you in your desert season, in your wanderings. He will provide all of your needs. He would be their daily bread. I love this theme in the Bible, this idea of feasting. I love any time when scripture talks about eating a meal, bread. I, maybe I just love bread. Maybe that's all it is. I'm not sure. <laughs> but what, what did this mean to them? The, the, one of the commands for this tabernacle was that there was to be bread laid out on a table. Well, let's jump back to what we opened up with, that scene where the elders are invited up on the mountain. They see God. And if we don't slow down, we'll miss it. But what did we see? It says, they beheld God and they ate and drank. Not only did God not kill them, but he spread a table before them. God is now acting as a host as he eats and drinks with them. There was a lot of sweet cross-references that we could have gone to and it's going to take a lot of self-control for me to focus in on just one. But what we need to learn from this and then from Psalm 23 is that our God, the God of the Israelites, is a God who wants fellowship. The Hebrews needed to learn, God wants fellowship with you. Remember, they're just picking up on what they needed to know about him and what they needed to know about the covenant. It was important that they understood this God is a God who wants communion with you. Psalm 23, so many of us have known this since our childhood, this whole psalm. That verse in there that says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That's some beautiful feasting imagery we see there. But what does that actually mean? You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So I want you to actually picture that God is the host and he is inviting you to this beautiful long, we'll make it a farmhouse table, of course. And here you are and you're, you have been invited to the head of the table. And what is spread before you is the goodness of God. What is spread out in front of you to feast on is God's providence, God's patience, God's guidance, his forgiveness. Oh, there's his mercy. Oh, there's his sovereignty. Oh, there's his nearness. And you're like, this is amazing. I'm, I'm invited to, to feast on all of God's goodness. 
But then, who walks in the door but my biggest regret? Who follows them? My biggest enemy. My biggest naysayer. Who comes in and sits down at the other end of the table? Maybe my bad habit, my shame, my weakness, my shallowness. You prepare, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? I don't deserve this, God. I, don't, I, I can't feast on, on your, your goodness. I can't have communion with you because what that person says about me is true. That accusation is true. That me being two-faced, that's true. And that, in that moment, is the gospel. We, we don't deserve that table to be spread before us. It is in the presence of our enemies that the gospel clicks for us. And we say, oh, yeah, it's in their very presence that I get the goodness of God. When all my weaknesses, all my sin, all my rebellion is laid out there and I get communion with him, that is the gospel from within the tabernacle. I do not get invited because I am void of enemies and poor motives, void of guilt or regret but I get it in the very presence of those things. The last piece of furniture we saw was the lampstand. This lampstand was what we would picture as a menorah, right? This thing was huge. It was made of gold, and it was a piece of art. It was intricate. It had stems and cups. It it was made to resemble a fruit-bearing tree. And so in your homework, you're like, oh, I get it, Eden, right? You all did that? In that voice, oh, Eden, it's wonderful. It's a tree of life, a fruit-bearing tree. And you once again saw that the tabernacle was like a mini Eden, reminding them, teaching them, I will restore my presence. The purpose of this lampstand was to give light to a dark area, right? I don't picture there being windows in this tabernacle, do you? No, it was layers and layers and layers of tent. This was the only source of light in there. So what was it giving light to? Well, we know that only the priests were in there. So it was lighting the way near to God for that high priest to actually go into the Holy of Holies. And it was lighting the way for the other priests to do the work of God. They would otherwise have no way to find the bread or or to burn the incense. So what did they learn about God from this? They were being reminded that this is the God who makes light come out of darkness. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. What else did they learn? God would light the way through the wilderness. right? So if they had already forgotten what we studied last week, that God would light their way, this was their reminder. What do we learn about God from this lampstand? Well, in John 8, we get to see that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. And furthermore, we get to find other spots where it says that we are the light of the world. 
right? And we've studied this a couple times now. This analogy of a light is so rich. We could talk about it for a whole week, just on what does that mean that we are the light? I think, you know, it, it could mean just that we light the way to God, right? We as Christian women should be lighting the way to God as that lampstand did in the tabernacle. But what else can light do? Light exposes nasty stuff, right? There's always that analogy of that rock is moved and what loves the darkness hurries to the corners, right? So there should be times where the fact that we are the light of the world should affect even those of us who are in this room where your light is going to expose what I would rather keep hidden. And that's a scary time. What else can light do? It can, it can set the mood, right? It can be a mood enhancer, right? Sometimes we're thinking like early February and life is just hard, right? It's just gray out there. And we need light. We need that summer light to come and to lift our spirits, to lift our head. That is part of what we're called to when we are called the light of the world. So who are you lifting the head of? Whose spirits are you lifting? You are the light of the world. I heard an awesome sermon this week that talked about different times when, when God or Jesus calls us certain things in the Bible. And... Um, here, how, this is how they said it. We will grow into what we have been called to. So maybe as I bring up this topic of light, this application, this is our take-home application from the week, you're thinking, I'm not. I fail. I am not a light. I'm not a light to my coworkers because I lack the courage. I'm not a light at home because I'm not consistent and patient enough. I'm not a light in this arena because there's just compromise. And maybe you just feel like, just a failure, like I'm just not a consistent light. That the, when we are told that we are the light in the Bible, what God is saying is this is who you are. This is who I have made you to be. Whether you feel like it or not, this is your identity. And the more that you grow in me, the more you will grow into that purpose. So think about Abraham. Abraham was called the father of many nations when he had how many children? Zero. Over and over again, he was called the father of many nations long before he ever even had a son. Same thing with his wife. How about Peter? What was Peter called early on? The rock. More accurately translated, pebble, which is hilarious. Was Peter a rock at that time? Had Peter proven himself? No. Had Peter even learned from his mistakes yet? No, he hadn't even committed those huge mistakes that we all know about. But still Jesus comes to him and says, you are the rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. See, we need to believe that when God says that we are the light, that that is who he has made us to be. And when we can grasp that, we are going to live out that purpose all the more, right? Because we're going to make it about him more than about us. This week, who are you being a light to? We're not supposed to cover it with a lamp or with a bowl. Let's be a bright light in this city of women who know the truth and women who can light the way near to God. So what is the big picture truth we see in this week of study? 
Well, like I said at the beginning, what the Israelites needed to learn is that God was coming there. He was moving in with them. But another way that I saw it described is that the Lord had truly taken up residence in the tabernacle. So what I see here, when I look at these first three pieces of furniture, I picture one of those awesome Christmas cards with a very nostalgic scene of Christmas where you're looking at a snowy house. And what do you see in the window? The light is on. The bread, the pie, whatever it is, is on the table. And even a candle is burning. We'll just steal the altar of incense from next week. What does that say when a light is on and when the bread is on the table? Somebody's home. See, the Israelites needed to learn that God was taking up residence with his people. God's presence would always be with his people. What we need to understand here is that God does not just keep us on the outskirts of his tabernacle. He doesn't keep us on the outskirts of his presence. See, it's one thing to have someone at your foyer, right? There are some people that we keep just at our foyer, a salesman or an annoying little neighbor kid, right? We keep them at the, out on the doorstep. It's, some, it's something else to have someone come in and, and be inside your house and, and maybe be in your living room. But is it not a whole nother level when we invite someone to come in and to sit at our table and to have a meal with us, to feast with us? See, that is what God is explaining to these people, is that I am going to come all the way into your life. I want to be the center of your life. I'm going to feast with you. He invites these Hebrews to approach him in his way only and his way exactly. And the same is true for us now. But what table are we invited to? See, there's another table that I saw in scripture and that you guys saw in your workbooks. There's another table with elements that I see in the tabernacle. It's another table that has bread and the cup. It's the communion table where we hear that Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then we take the cup and we remember the repetitive blood that was spilled in the courtyard of the tabernacle and at times brought in and sprinkled on the table of presence. And we see that that table is our communion table that now we are regularly invited to, to have that communion with God. What were they supposed to remember inside that tabernacle? Their sins. Right? Over and over again, they are told to remember your sins. You dare not approach God or his Shekinah glory if you have not covered your sins in blood. But what are we told to remember at the communion table? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. 
to see how good it is that our focus gets to change. We do not have to, like the Hebrews, just remember our sin over and over again. We don't have to pay for our sins over and over again, ladies. But you know what we do? We remember Jesus. We remember the gospel. We ponder this mercy. And we don't stay at the outskirts, but we draw near. What do we draw near to? Let us draw near with confidence to a throne of grace that we may find help in our time of need. This is good news for us. These weird scriptures with cubits and and weird materials and woods and exactness that we could just miss. It is our gospel and it is here for us to enjoy and to celebrate. So this week, let's encourage one another to draw near and draw near with confidence, not because you're all that, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's preach the gospel to each other and then let's go out there and let's be really bright lights to this place.